So how many of you commuted to church this morning? I'm not talking about a car or truck trip or a motorcycle or bicycle or even walking. I'm talking about the difference between the things you normally do each day compared to the things that we do here on Sunday mornings. For most of us, Sunday morning liturgy, hymns, and sitting in a pew is very unlike anything that we do Monday through Saturday. Your friends would probably think it very strange if they arrived at your home and there was rows of pews in the living room, the organ music playing in the background, and you were wearing a white robe with stoles next to the kitchen table with a stained glass window in the background. Or maybe that's exactly how you house, have your house set up, which I'm not going to complain. When Nancy and I order takeout, it's usually because what we're ordering, what we have a hankering for, is either stuff we don't have in the kitchen, too expensive, too convoluted to make because it requires a whole bunch of steps and is going to take too long, or just something that somebody else makes so much better than we do that, let's face it, it wouldn't be worth it for us to try to duplicate it because it would never taste the same. It's the same for going to a theater or a bar or even a hotel. It has to have something you either want or need, something that is so unique that you're willing to leave your home, pay a cost, and commute to wherever it is so that you can experience it. Our lesson from the book of Acts. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. When I ask people who are unchurched or dechurched what they think about the church, it's actually very enlightening. There is the usual talk about pews and stained glass, that big table up front, and the funny clothes that the pastor and the acolyte wear. That's to be expected. And by the way, the only other place they ever hear in somebody playing an organ is at a baseball game, so they've got questions about that. There are some things that they are used to. Uh, the worship team or the soloist, a lot like karaoke. Having to buy a ticket to go to something is standard, but they do wonder why we ask you to buy your ticket when things are almost over rather than before when you arrive. Oh, and the fact that you get to decide how much you're going to pay, that's also a little strange to them, although they're beginning to see it with crowdfunding and crowdsourcing and things like that. Coffee, flowers, a kid's club, and a movie screen, now they understand that because that happens at hotels as well. Then comes the parts that they are either attracted to or repelled by. They'll say, you know that thing that you do at the beginning of the service where you talk about all the bad stuff you've done? Uh, they're talking about confession and absolution. They either say, you know, I, I actually really like that. It, it, actually, it actually makes me feel good. Or they say, why would anyone want to do that? It is so stupid. You know, there are frequent and deep misunderstandings about a lot of the things that are church. Whether it's the things like pews and organs or candles or the things we do like confession, absolution, sermons and offerings. The church was never meant to be a secret organization where only a sacred few had access to the secret handshakes and the meaning beyond all the metaphors. Confirmation was not meant to be years of memorizing things just for the sake of memorizing them and being able to regurgitate them. Confirmation helps explain the things that are right in front of our eyes but have much deeper meanings than just the surface. And here is the separator. The only way to see beyond the ordinary and the evident is to have faith. And faith is offered and available to everyone, but some choose to reject it or limit it. Confirmation is when the pastor says the water poured over your head at baptism was just water, but God infused in with that water faith and belief 
He was able to take away your sin and make you his child. I know it looks just like bread and wine, but God infuses it with the body and blood of Jesus. How? We're not totally sure. But it empties you of your sin and it fills you up with himself. And I know it looks like a funny-shaped table, but it's God's table. And you're invited to sit with the creator of all things, listen to his stories, and enjoy an amazing feast. You can also ask him questions about life and eternity. And just like you used to be able to ask mom and dad as you sat around the dinner table about things, God's ready to answer those questions. And when it comes to the you know that thing at the beginning where you talk about all the bad stuff you've done, we learn that keeping all that stuff inside of us, holding it all in, not letting it go, it's not healthy for us in our body, our mind, or our soul. And if we need proof, all we have to do is look at the news and all the terrible things that are happening because someone couldn't let go of the pain or the hurt or the sin or their past. 30 years ago, Nancy and I were at Kapiolani Hospital at the imaging department getting our first glimpse of Molly. The tech doing the ultrasound began giving us a guided tours of the wonders of this tiny little child that was still inside the womb. At first, all I could see was shapes that were either lighter or darker and moving around. The tech said, well, there are her fingers, and there are her toes, and there is her four-chambered heart, and there is her head. He saw the confusion on my face, and he says, oh, you can't see it? And I go, no, I just kind of see kind of shapes and light and dark. And he says, okay. So he took the cursor, and then he pointed. He says, do you see her toes? Oh, yeah, there they are. Do you see her fingers? Oh, yeah. Okay, let me show you her heart. Look at the four chambers. Notice how they're beating. Ah! And here's her head. And, and as she flipped around inside, some days, sometimes we saw it a little clearer and other times we didn't. But once he showed it to me, then I couldn't not see those things. You see, whether it was Molly, Micah, or Katie, Micah or Katie coming along years later, when we were watching the ultrasound, I didn't need him to explain it to me anymore. Oh, I certainly wasn't an expert. But I could see the primary things that they were looking for. By the way, I was totally amazed, no matter how many times I looked. One of the things I've been most concerned about in the church over the past decade, knowing that it's gone on and happened for a lot longer than that, is the number of pastors and famous Christians who one day are on fire for Jesus, and the next, they're unbelievers. Now, by the way, such a change is actually impossible. This is what we learn from Romans chapter 8, verses 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Now, all Christian churches teach predestination. But the only argument is about our role in it. Whether we choose God or he chooses us. Either way, because God lives outside of time and space, he already knows who's going to be in heaven and who isn't. In fact, they're already there or they're already not there because that's the way God's time and space works. And it's unchangeable. Hmm. Which leads us to the mysteries of the faith, like baptism, communion, confession, absolution, and the others. You have to have faith to see past the metaphor, the absolution, and all the other things that we talk about. You have to have faith to see past the metaphor, because otherwise they just remain a metaphor, an object, or a moment. However, even without faith, you can see that they are more than they seem. 
that there is something deeper. And this is the work of the Spirit, where you discover if your heart and soul are open to such things. When the tech is sliding that little cursor around, if you suddenly go, that's, I knew it, I knew it, I, I wanted to see that, and now I do. You know, I grew up Baptist, which meant that we couldn't play card games. When I became a Lutheran, I didn't suddenly have an urge to play euchre or pinochle. But when Nancy and I moved to Indiana and we would go to somebody's house, there was an expectation because everybody played either euchre or pinochle. Every, green, every uh, good, by the way, Lutheran also ate green jello, sang in four-part harmony. So we were at the principal's home. And you don't want to have the principal think badly of your wife, who's one of his teachers. And so after dinner, they cleared everything off the table and they immediately pulled out the deck of cards to play euchre. And they said, all right. And they said, Mitch, get over here. And I go, oh, no, thanks. I don't do cards. They said, oh, no, you have to. Okay, fine. So they dealt the cards. And then it came my turn and I'm sitting there and they go, well, play a card. And I go, I don't know what I'm doing. Most of them, by the way, just about passed out. They, they couldn't believe that I didn't understand. And I didn't want to go into the whole thing. I grew up Baptist and cards were evil. And, and so they said, okay, we're going to give you a teaching. And so for about 30 seconds, they told me everything I needed to know about Euchre. Okay, it went in one ear and out the other. So from then on, all I did was I put a card down. And sometimes they would go, uh, what did you do? Oh, you must have really bad cards. Uh, don't worry, next time you'll have better cards. And then another, I'd throw another card down. They'd go, oh, that was absolutely amazing. There's no way anybody's going to beat that. Yeah, they had no idea. Well, they probably did that I wasn't knowing anything about it because they never asked me to play again. You know, since there is no official tick-the-box sheet to prove that you're a real believer versus someone who's just pretending, it can be challenging. See, it's one thing when you aren't a believer and you know you aren't a believer and you're just going along with whoever you're trying to impress because it's going to get you something that you want. For those who are completely, totally, perfectly, and without a doubt believers, there are no worries there either. But for many of us, there can be this sliver of doubt, this, how can I know this for sure? This, what if, that's rambling around in the back of our mind which is why so much of the church is far more about telling people what is good and what is evil, because that's a lot easier than helping someone sort through their emotions and questions when it comes to their faith. A while, and while a lot of pastors and churches think preaching about all things good and all things evil helps people. For some, by the way, it just becomes a merit badge of pride that they wear proudly because the pastor confirmed that they are really good Christians and the guy over there is not so good of a Christian because we all know that he doesn't do what the pastor said you're supposed to do. And others, for others it becomes a painful, painful moment because no matter how hard they try, they just can't be as good as they think they should based upon what the pastor said. Pride and despair are both forms of the same problem, one that only Jesus can set you free from. You see, while the Bible contrasts good and evil, there is a subtext to good that isn't about being right or perfect, because we're all under grace. And so when St. Luke writes these words in the book of Acts, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. It leads us to where nothing else can, into the arms of Jesus. I often go to extraordinary lengths to pretend so that I can avoid the truth. If you are still in need of something to read and are ready to work through a book that is not easy, but it is filled with grace where we need it most, read the book, Tell We Have Faces, by C.S. Lewis. It's a spiritual retelling of a Greek story where a person is seeking the truth 
everywhere, but where it can actually be found. Until the end, or when it is finally made known in the most simple and loving way, and the person has no choice but to either accept it or reject it. Such is the truth of the mysteries of the faith as well. It is not until by faith that we can see beyond the water, beyond the bread, beyond the wine, beyond the pews, the pulpit, the stained glass windows, the hymns, the sermons, and we see Jesus, that we're ever going to find what we're truly looking for. Because all these things around us, they are simply made to point us to Jesus, because He is the only one in whom we will find salvation. I remember a night at Christmas where my granddaughter did not want to go to sleep. Oh, there was so much going on, so much noise, all the sights and sounds and colors and smells. She even that day got to dip her toes into the ocean and play with the sand. Everyone was downstairs. Nancy and I had taken turns helping the kids go to sleep because it wasn't easy to go from all of this being overwhelmed to suddenly, all right, turn everything off and go to sleep. Esther did not want to sleep, but she needed to. Her eyes and her red face and snotty nose and piercing cry demanded a return to the living room and everything that was going on there. And yet when she was there, she couldn't keep her eyes open. And everything, and I mean everything, upset her. She fought and fought and fought. And then literally in an instant, she fell asleep. I held her in the quiet and the dark for a few more minutes, making sure that she was really asleep before I put her in the crib. The scene was repeated on several other nights. She just couldn't quite embrace the truth of what she really needed until she no longer had a choice. And that is why on Sunday mornings we make the spiritual commute to a place that has pews and an altar and a few pieces of stained glass, along with liturgy and hymns when they let us, and the pastor wears a big white dress. It is also why down the street there is a Catholic Seventh-day Adventist Assembly of God Episcopal and Bible Church, each with their own spiritual commutes. And as long as they lead to Jesus... They are also elements of grace. It is also why even when COVID restrictions are over, the church will never go back to the way it was on March 10th, 2020. There will be some things that are the same, but there will also be some new things, some brand new things, because that's the way Jesus is. No matter how hard we try, we cannot live up to our own expectations, let alone God's. With every good intention, we pursue God until we're distracted by something shiny, and then we go running off in the opposite direction. We try to convince ourselves, and especially others, that we're only a tiny bit broken. But we know better. That's why St. John, in his letter, says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is merciful and just, will forgive our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, that is the truth that we need to hear. The truth scatters the darkness. The truth is hard. It requires us to step into something that feels like it might suck the life right out of us. But in reality, it's simply removing the darkness and the doubt and the fear and replacing it with light and love and hope. And only the gospel can do that. The beauty of the gospel is you cannot possess grace or truth because they are not ours. They can't be ours. They belong to God who generously and lovingly bestows them on us, in us, and around us, literally just pours it onto us and into us. And as these mysteries of God unfold, they are in such abundance, they begin to flow out of us and into the world around us, into our family, into our friends, into our community, and into our world. The world may not fully understand them, for it is only by faith that you can fully know them. 
but the world knows that they are more than they seem. Jeremiah, Zechariah, Amos, and St. John were all asked by an angel, So, what do you see? And these prophets of God said, Well, I see. And the angel let them talk. And then the angel said, That's great. Now look deeper and see what it really is. And suddenly they were transported into the presence of God. The water poured over your forehead, the bread and wine of Holy Communion, the words of absolution, the hymns, the liturgy, even the pews and the stained glass are more than they seem. Through the eyes of faith, they can take us into the presence of a loving, forgiving, forever God who can't wait to spend eternity with us. But remember, they're just things. That's all they are. You see, the only reason they matter, the only reason we do them, the only reason we have them, it's because they lead us into the presence of God. I know St. Luke said salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. But I don't think he'd mind it if I paraphrased it just a little bit to say, by which we would want to be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.